Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of The Human Voice. As I've said before, this podcast is all about the intersection of technology, psychology, and spirituality. And for you regular listeners, and maybe for you new ones, you have experienced a pretty wide swath of guests that I've had on here. You may have heard me refer in the past to someone named Marshall McLuhan. Today, I have his grandson with me, and we're going to have a fascinating discussion. To say that I've been looking forward to this interview is probably the understatement of the decade. He was kind enough to actually write a endorsement of our upcoming book, Our Digital Souls, which we, which we talked about recently. You can go and listen to that episode. But I want to give you just a little bit of background of Andrew, his father, and his grandfather. Andrew McLuhan is the grandson of Marshall McLuhan, the noted Canadian professor from the University of Toronto who was a pioneer in the field of media and communication studies. Andrew's father, Eric McLuhan, was Marshall's eldest son who worked with Marshall from the mid-60s until Marshall died in 1980. From 1980 until his own death in 2018, Eric McLuhan continued the work he began with his father, completing important works such as Laws of Media, The New Science, 1980, Media and Formal Cause, 2011, Theories of Communication, 2011, among other solo works. In 2009, Andrew, who we're talking to today, began work documenting and inventorying Marshall McLuhan's annotated library, now at the Fisher Rare Book Library at the University of Toronto, and named to UNESCO's Memory of the World Register of Globally Significant Cultural Artifacts, which was his first major McLuhan project, and one he speaks on regularly. For about a decade now, Andrew has acted as Eric McLuhan's part-time assistant, student, and travel companion, and he accompanied him on speaking tours near and far, getting deeper and deeper into the unique McLuhan tradition of exploring culture and technology. Andrew is now the director of the McLuhan Institute, which was created in 2017 to continue the work begun by Marshall McLuhan and Eric McLuhan in exploring and understanding culture and technology. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure to be there. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about this discussion. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I assume that the human voice on the other side of the microphone today is coming to me and to all of us from Toronto. Is that correct? Well, close enough. Uh, I was I was born and raised in Toronto, but um, in my late teens, moved with my parents to a place called Prince Edward County, um, which has been kind of unflatteringly described as Toronto's Hamptons. It's a... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a about a two hour drive east of Toronto um, on Lake Ontario, uh, a rural kind of area that's um, a bit of wine country and well known for its for its beach and uh, kind of where I, I wound up and I've I've basically been here since. Wow, it sounds beautiful. It's it is it's it's the best. So tell me about the McLuhan Institute. Um, I'm fascinated, and I know it's probably a, certainly a labor of love. It's a familial 
labor for you. It's in your blood. But tell me about what the McLuhan Institute is, what you do on a regular basis, and and, and how it's influencing people right now. Um, I'm happy to. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, as, as you read in, in the intro, I kind of started it in the summer of 2017. Um, you see, my father had, had worked with his father, with Marshall McLuhan, um, as a very close collaborator. He you know, they explored side by side, they co-wrote, he ended up finishing Laws of Media, as you said, and, and many other things. Um, Dad and I never worked that closely together. I mean, my father was a scholar, like really, um, if you look up scholar in the encyclopedia or on Google, it's just picture was there. Picture of him. <laughs> it should. This is the guy who, to do the book Media Formal Cause, you mentioned, he relearned Greek so that he could go back to the source texts um, and not rely on, on English translations of formal cause. So, mm. um, and like that's scholarship, okay? <laughs> you know, yeah. teaching yourself another language so that you can go directly to the source. So that's, that's kind of the pinnacle to me. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a poet and a, and a punk rocker. I oh, barely awesome. graduated high school. Um, university was never in the cards for me. I'm kind of holding out for an honorary degree at this point, <laughs> if that ever comes my way. Um, so, uh, so the relationship, working relationship I had with my father was much different, but, um, you know, Marshall McLuhan died at the age of 69 mm -hmm. in 1980 on, uh, the eve of, uh, New Year's Eve, 1980, uh, very unexpectedly, um, he'd had a stroke uh, a year plus previously, and that um, made him unable to to speak, to communicate. But he was expected to recover. I mean, he he wasn't quite seventy years old. Um, his death was was sudden, and my dad was kind of left um, uh, holding the bag a bit and without much direction. And um, you know, in the summer of 2017, I'd been kind of working increasingly with my dad. Um, getting more and more involved in the work. You know, I, I found in my, in my later years around 2009, when you mentioned I did this, this amazing inventory that, um, and started traveling with my dad, that the work made sense in a way it didn't when I was younger and tried to approach it. Um, I tried when I was a kid and it didn't mean anything. And I tried when I was a teenager and it meant a bit more. And I tried when I was in my twenties and a bit more, but not quite enough. And, but in, in my thirties, it started to make sense and, you know, I don't know if, if you ever have this, but, you know, an epiphany or, or an, when you finally get a concept or an idea, it's, uh, it's kind of a bit of a seductive thing. And mm. it makes you want to learn more. It makes yes. you want to go deeper into it. So this is kind of what happened to me. And um, I became my dad's travel companion and studying more closely with him. And gosh, he was the most patient teacher. Um, so in 2017, I saw my dad wasn't getting me younger and I didn't want to be left in the position he was left in, you know, um, without any direction. And, um, you know, my dad had kind of kept on, uh, he didn't really care for the spotlight at all. Uh, as I said, poet and punk rocker, I have no problems with the spotlight, but, <laughs> um, dad, dad liked to be in his office writing and researching and doing the, that whole thing. And, God bless him for it. But um, there wasn't any succession plan uh, or not even anything like that. There wasn't even, 
any formal apparatus for continuing. You know, my dad had just done his thing. Um, mm. You know, sure, sure, different universities have a course here or there, and you know, some departments might spend a little more time on Marshall McLuhan than others, but um, there was nothing really dedicated uh, to Marshall McLuhan's work. And my father had basically carried that torch all those years. And so I came up with this thing, you know, and as I got more interested, I started to do a little bit of teaching and speaking and, and uh, workshops and things like this. Um, but I, I felt it was important to put something in place um, as kind of an umbrella to keep all these things alive and uh, against the day when my dad would eventually die and against the day when I would eventually die. Um, to my complete surprise and kind of horror, my dad died less than a year later. Mm. Uh, we were on a, he, he had been invited to speak in Colombia in Bogota and he delivered a speech called media ecology in the 21st century. And it was, uh, really remarkable speech. Um, you can see it on the McLuhan Institute YouTube page. Uh, and the next day, um, we were scheduled to fly out later. Uh, he didn't get around very well and I wanted to do some sightseeing. So I went to check out the Museo del Oro, the gold museum, which is incredible. Um, and I came back to the hotel room to find him on the floor and unresponsive. And, mm. um, he, he died, uh, was pronounced dead in the hospital. Mm. Um, so that was obviously a shock. Uh, and I, I'm glad I at least had started thinking towards something like the McLuhan Institute. Um, and now we are, here we are a few minutes, a few years, a few minutes later, a few years later. Uh, and, uh, and I've, I feel like I've come a long way. You know, I went from idea, um, and, you know, I, I ran a business doing furniture upholstery. That's what I've done in the last decade or so. Um, and my, my goal was to start to scale down the furniture thing while I scaled up um, McLuhan work, whatever that might mean, um, to get at least a sustainable level. Uh, and that's where I am today, actually. I, I kind of feel like I'm making my living as a poet, which is a remarkable thing. Um, yeah. And, and I can see, you know, before very long, I might be able to move beyond sustainability and start building toward uh, expanding the Institute to what I want it to be, which is, you know, an international kind of refuge here in the country in Southern Ontario, where people can come and learn clue and work and study the materials I have in an archive and, um, you know, go out into the countryside, maybe go to the beach and uh, be in nature and away mm -hmm. from the kind of unproductive distractions and looking at a cloud, which I find to be a very productive distraction, you know? Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of where I am today. I mean, my focus in the McLuhan Institute to wrap that up a little bit is, um, you know, maybe it's because I come at it from a non-academic, uh, place, but I'm not interested in theory. And I think we're at a time globally, you know, in our, in our combined civilization, where we don't need papers and conferences, we need to make act, we need to take action. And, um, you know, in McLuhan work, we have a, a series of tools that help us to explore and understand the nature of technology and its impacts on uh, ourselves individually and collectively, uh, societally. Um, so my focus in the McLuhan Institute is to uh, make those kind of tools available. Um, 
accessible in terms of pe- people being able to get at them for one mm. thing, but also um, in terms of being able to um, use them. Uh, and, you know, I believe, you know, not to be falsely modest or anything, but I'm, I'm not a genius. Uh, I, I'm, kind of, I'm an average-ish person. And I believe if I can understand this stuff, then anybody can. Mm. So uh, that, that gives me a little hope. And that's essentially my mission. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. The unique thing about your grandfather, Andrew, and, and I want to go down this road a little bit, was, you know, when you think this is the first time hearing about Marshall McLuhan, I would encourage you to go uh, Google, find his work, go, you know, however you can read some of his quotes, watch some of the YouTube videos that are out there. Um because when you think of a philosopher, a media theorist, uh, actually, he was trained, and I believe, if, correct me if I'm wrong, his job was an English professor, right? That, that's yeah. he, His claim to fame and what people knew him as, you'll see him referred to as a sociologist and a media philosopher and all these things. But at the very heart of it, he was a writer and a lover of, of literature and English. And um, I think that brings a real interesting um, angle to what he talked about because you referred to something about your dream for the future of the McLuhan Institute. People come there and almost what you're saying is a contemplative space to come Mm -hmm. and think through. And that's the interesting thing to me about Marshall McLuhan is he was saying things in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that now are over half a century later that are so, so relevant today. And he said them in ways, it was almost like, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, he was a performance artist in, in one sense. If you, if you read his books, if you look at the, the way that he would title things, and if you looked at the way that he even spoke to different audiences... It was almost like he was playing a role in order to convey a message. And so it's not about listening only to McLuhan or reading quotes, but actually you have to sit with it for a while because there is something deeper underneath those words he was always trying to communicate. Am I looking at that, interpreting that accurately? Yeah, uh, I mean... Very, um, very well. Very good. Very good job there. Um, people, people forget or disregard that. Yeah, indeed, Marshall McLuhan was a teacher, professor of English literature for his entire career. Um, he taught at the University of Toronto from 1946 on, and that whole time he was employed as a professor of English. The media thing was kind of his side hustle, which is kind of funny. Um, and it became increasingly well-known for it uh, from the mid-50s onward. Um, but he also didn't come out of nowhere in the 60s either. He had been slowly uh, gaining notoriety as a, a literary critic and as a commentator on communication, and then more broadly um, as one of the uh, pioneers of media studies, which goes well beyond simple communication, uh, but includes all human innovation period, Mm. uh, which is an important distinction. And actually one of his largest contributions to media studies is his definition of this word medium to include not just communications media or how we talk to each other, 
um, but everything human beings do. Uh, so for him, uh, a medium worth study is a, a piece of clothing as much as a telephone mm. or a pen or a fork as much as any, a computer or anything else. Um, but you're quite right. Um, there's, there's a very performative aspect to his work and it's, uh, his approach to writing, uh, was, was very intentional and that is, he didn't, he didn't simply give you a statement for you to ingest. Um, he gave you something to make you think and mm. to consider. Mm. And uh, so something like the medium is the message, you know, uh, is meant not to, not to just be taken, but to be, to be thought of and uh, almost to meditate on, you know. Um, one thing I recommend to people is... See, I think people get into a lot of trouble trying to read McLuhan because they try to read um, a book like Understand Media like they may, might read some other book that they're used right. to reading. But it's not a textbook. It wasn't written for academia. It was written for a, you know, a more general audience. There's no footnotes in it. There are very few citations. You know, it's, not, it's not written to be an academic text. If anything, it's a book of poetry. And this is how I, I suggest people approach it. If if you want to, if you're having a hard time getting into getting into it, um, pick up a book of poetry. And I'm being absolutely serious. Pick up a book of poetry and read a few poems. Then read Understanding Media the mm. same way, and you'll get a lot much 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 more from it. Each each page, each paragraph, even each sentence is densely packed. You know, Marshall spent four years revising and rewriting that work, um, kind of distilling it into a, a more poetic form um, so that um, you're part of the process. Uh, you you make the meaning, you know, and that's, um, you know, and I've gained a lot of experience now teaching and I've realized that, you know, you don't really teach anybody anything, but you help them learn. And if that sounds kind of cliche or something, I don't know, but it's the truth. Um, so my job as a teacher is to facilitate your learning and your understanding. Um, and so I'm trying to give people, I'm, I see myself more as a guide than a, you know, as Marshall said, I don't explain, I explore. Mm. Uh, but I, I consider myself more a navigator. So I help you find your own way, uh, not just simply a, a tour guide. Uh, I want you to to learn to learn it for yourself. I love um, the description. I love that. Mm, thank you. What would you say, Andrew, uh, drove your grandfather to your knowledge? What was his greatest concern, or what did he feel his purpose was on the earth? Wow, <laughs> that's a big that's a big question. <clears throat> I mean. You know, how I said a moment ago, uh, the power of epiphany or understanding how it's like a seductive thing that makes you want more. I think he was very much caught up in the thrill of the chase. Um, mm. This discovery is exciting. Yeah. You know, if, if you read um, if you read Laws of Media, uh, which my father published in 1988, actually, he and Marshall were working on this in the early 1970s. It began as a project to revise, to put out a 10th anniversary edition of Understanding Media in like 1972. And it ended up going well beyond the scope of what, you know, a 10th anniversary edition of another book might be and turn into its own thing. 
Um, but if, if you read the introduction, um, dad talks about how he and Marshall were sitting down and looking for these laws of media or, you know, what, what things do all human technologies do? Mm. Um, you know, every technology does a hundred or more things or less, but what do they all do? So, you know, we know that we have the laws of gravity or relativity or whatever, you know, these constants, what, what constants are there in human community, in human technology? And they discovered that there were four that always happen that all technologies do. Uh, and the way that my father describes this process of discovery between them, it's, it's exciting. It's heady, you know? And so I'm sure that was a big driver. Um, Marshall also felt, and some people might, uh, well, some people do disagree, but he said uh, at one point, I'm the only one who knows what's going on. You know, he felt he had this um, secret, almost knowledge into the workings of things uh, that he could see things that other people couldn't see or perceive things. Maybe he was right. Well, because So many of so many quotes that you read today, um, yeah. you if you don't put a name or an, or a year by it, you would yeah. think that they are talking about modern society. Can you tell yeah. the, can, can you tell the listeners some of the things that some of the terms that your grandfather coined that are still being used today? Sure. Well, I mean, the thing about it is that, um, you know, he said, I'm very careful to only predict things which have already happened. Mm. Okay. And he, he, you know, he was a fan, he was into poetry, right? So he, he liked to turn a phrase, mm -hmm. uh, and he was very quick on his feet. So he was entertaining to interview and to watch. Uh, and he had a lot of fun. I don't know if, if you do a lot of interviews, they can, they can don't take offense. They can get a bit dull if you get asked the sure. same questions all the time. So um, it can be a bit of a game, you know, a bit of a back and forth between you and the interviewer to kind of, you know, see who's running circles around whom. But um, so he had a lot of fun there. Uh, if you watch uh, on YouTube, the quote unquote debate with Marsha McLuhan and Norman Mailer, uh, mm. that's a, a good example of him having fun and really putting on a persona um, and a, an act, I guess. Um, but the thing about, uh, he insisted that he wasn't predicting anything. He was looking around him and describing his present. Mm. Now, the, the thing which should give you pause is that, um, it only makes sense today, 50, 70 years later, yep. but he insisted he wasn't talking about 2020. He was talking about 1950, even earlier and sometimes later, um, and that's very interesting. It's fascinating. Where, where, where this gives me a little bit of, makes me a little bit nervous is that if he's describing things about his present, which only, which we see today and people say, oh yeah, I see that. That's around us. Um, what are, what are we in today that we're not <laughs> going to see for 50 years? That's what fascinates me most about your grandfather, quite honestly. Yeah. And, it, and it's the inspiration, one of the inspirations for what I do, what I do. Mm. Uh, and I'm, the reason that I'm talking to you here today is I really, really want to understand yeah. those, you could call them unseen things that are actually quite obvious, but, yep. but unable to be seen by uh, most well, uh, that is the trick, isn't it? It's like, it how do you, how do you see what you can't see? How do you notice what you can't notice? How did Marshall do it? 
that is um, a big part of, of my research is trying to, you know, figure that out because I think we, we really, we really need to know Um, now. And I think we can, I mean, Marshall was certainly a special case. He was, you know, one of those people, they don't, they don't make two of them. We don't see many of them. Um, but, um, a lot of what he did, uh, you know, can be, can be replicated. He left behind a lot of, um, a lot of how to's, for example, understanding media, the extensions of man, his 1964 book is a guidebook. Um, you know, it's divided into two parts. Part one is seven chapters and it's a series of tools for examining technology and its effects. Hmm. Part two is 26 chapters and it's taking those tools from part one and applying them to specific things like housing and clothing and print and speech and different uh, television, different technologies. Um, if you, if you look at that book as a poetic guidebook, um, you'll, you'll get a lot from it. And I teach it. Um, I teach a course on it. That's it's 36, three hour classes. And we go through it word by word. Um, in my library, I have all the books that he references and we look at the references and context and, all the all the different works of his 50-year career that have bearing on it, we pull it and we look at it too. And uh, in this way, um, we approach and we, we learn some things about his method and, and how we might try and replicate it a little bit today. Wow, that's amazing. I want to play a little game with you and I'd love to, uh, I'd love to read some quotes. And I, I, I don't want to leave out your father because he wrote a fascinating book back in 2015 that I want to talk about because I think it is fascinating and it's very – you don't really hear about it much. But before we get to that, I want to throw out some quotes from Marshall McLuhan and I want to hear your response in the context of how they hit you and also how you feel like they apply today. We're doing this in August of 2022. I'm very interested, as you know, about how um, technology affects us and affects us, and it affects our psychology, our physiology, and I believe that Marshall believed that and talked about it way back starting in the 50s, and I think that's why he was so ahead of his time. But I want to lead with this first quote that I think will set the stage He said, mine is a transformation theory, how people are changed by the instruments they employ. Yeah, uh, you picked that up off off my Twitter feed. (laughs) Yes, it was your Twitter. It was I had a bunch of quotes and I was finishing it up and I happened to look at your Twitter feed and I said, I got to add that one because it's perfect. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. And it's um, it's a really simple way of of separating McLuhan's um, approach to, uh, a a lot of others. And he would, he would say that it's a difference between a transportation approach and a transformation approach, um, physics versus metaphysics. And so Marshall characterized, uh, our conventional approach, you know, the Claude Shannon Weaver, Shannon Weaver model, um, as a transportation thing, you know, they're, they're concerned with, um, getting a message, through a bunch of things to a receiver, um, you know, transportation, the carrying of one thing from one place to another with as little friction as possible. Right. Mm. Um, 
but that doesn't, in, in Marshall's view, account for uh, what happens along the way. And as he said, you know, um, people have been, in, in all human history, people have been shaped more by the means of communication than by the contents of communication. Mm. Um, you know, it's uh, not to deflate our egos, but it's, it's a little consequence, uh, you know, the details of our conversation here today compared to um, the effect of Zoom or the impact of Zoom over the last three years since uh, COVID. Right. You know? um, it's, it, it's meant a reshaping of work, of how people get together and celebrate and everything else. And that has um, less to do with the things that we're using it for than uh, its impact uh, as an environment, uh, a shaping influence. Um, so transformation... Uh, versus transportation and the, the transformation part um, is a sort of, I think there are two orders of effects. Marshall put it as personal and social consequences. So, uh, and the one develops from the other uh, and the, for the personal consequences of technologies, you know, when, when, um, when you use a communication tool, like uh, from a printed page to a, a screen, um, you know, it affects your senses in a particular way. Mm. Um, it heightens the visual or it heightens the auditory or the tactile. Mm. Um, and, you know, our senses exist in a, in a balance, in an equilibrium relative to each other. And it, uh, Marshall was delighted to learn of a book uh, called And There Was Light by Jacques Lucirin. Um, Lucirin was a, was a Frenchman who was involved in the underground resistance in World War II. And he describes in this book how he became blind very suddenly at a, at a young age. And um, th the part that really piqued Marshall's notice was that he said, uh, as my visual sense went down, all my other senses went up. Mm. You know, and it's, uh, we, we know that, you know, people who go blind in their life often talk about how their audio, their sense of hearing uh, becomes more acute. They can yeah. feel things, sense things in, in other ways. So we know that our senses exist relative to each other. And when you affect one sense, you affect them all. Um, and this affects who we are uh, on, a very, on a very fundamental level from our identity to actually our being in the world. Um, we are different people when, when we rely more on our ears and when we rely more on our eyes. Mm. And when you get a bunch of different people together, you have a culture so then we, we see these societal effects and, you know, different people with different sensory uh, biases, you know, relative to each other have different preferences, you know, right. in, a, in a world ruled by the eye, we necessarily prioritize the visual in a world where um, the visual is less important. We prioritize or find pleasing or find abrasive different things. Um, right. This is, and this is all, this all has to do with the nature of the technology, um, regardless of what we're using it for, you know, it's on a different level. Um, so this is the transformation Marshall is talk, talking about. Um, and this is why he says the medium is the message because, uh, it's the medium. It is the sum total of effects of these technologies. The environment is another word for it. That is the message or, you know, what, what really gets us more than, than what we're, we're doing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And that, that's a great segue, Andrew, into my next quote, which is one of the ones that he's most famous for. 
And here it is. The medium is the message. This is merely to say that the personal and social consequences of any medium, that is, of any extension of ourselves, result from the new scale that is introduced into our affairs by each extension of ourselves or by any new technology. Mm. That I mean, if that's not 2022, if that's not <laughs> screens and iPhones, I don't know what is. Um, it's so well, re- so relevant. The thing about it is, it's uh, is as it's as ancient as it is modern. Yes, you know, it's um, you know, and this is why why McLuhan's work endures because it's not it's not situated anywhere. It is uh, it's uh, applicable as long as we innovate, as long as as we even speak to each other and want to understand what that means and what it does. Um, you know, McLuhan's work will be relevant because it looks at the nature of things, not the content of things. Because the content, um, you know, is, well, you quoted there from Understanding Media in 1964. Mm-hmm. And there's another quote in there um, just after that where he, he paraphrases T.S. Eliot. And he says, for the content is the juicy piece of meat used by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. Mm. So the content is there to, to hold our attention um, while the medium is reshaping us. You know, we don't, we don't notice because we're, we're too busy absorbed in, in what we're doing. That's uh, right. But, but this is actually the privilege of our position today. Um, mm. And, it, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword that, that really does cut both ways um, because it's, uh, you know, he, he also brought up Bertrand Russell, who said that if they only raise the temperature of the bathwater by a degree every hour, we wouldn't know when to scream. Mm. Okay. And right now we're living on the boiling point and we're dipping our toes in all the time. And we notice that the water's hot, very hot, and it doesn't feel too good. And what is going on? So it's, you know, it's, it's a result of this um this scale and this pace that we don't have time to adjust you know mm. back before electricity um change happened very gradually and we had a lot of time to get used to it and to adjust and we didn't notice it uh, right. it's not a coincidence that McLuhan comes along in the you know early 20th century when things uh when the pace has increased quite a bit um, cause we're in a position now to actually be able to notice things because we don't have time to adjust. So, you know, as a consequence of our inability, you know, the not having time to adjust, we, we deal with the fallout, which is like anxiety, stress, all kinds of things. Um, but the opportunities there is that, um, you know, we have that opportunity to, to understand and to possibly, do something about it, you know, cool yeah. the water down. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that what, what you're saying, um, I'm going to read two more quotes here because I think it, it reinforces what you're saying. And I want to unpack this a little bit more. So the first one is everybody experiences far more than he understands yet. It, it is experience rather than understanding that influences behavior. And the next one is, we become what we behold. We shape our tools and then our tools shape us. 
And, and like you just explained, and, and again, understanding the medium is the message, what I believe Marshall McLuhan was saying, and what I hear you saying is, it's not about understanding the tools. It's not even about, this is what I've always said for the past 10 years. I, I, I speak quite a bit and I'm invited to talk about the influences of, of technology. And I've actually worked in, in digital marketing now for 20 years. One of the things that I've always said is it's inaccurate to say that these things are just tools um, because they become extensions of ourselves in the same way that a, a shovel could be used to, to dig a foundation for a house to, to build houses for people in need. Um, that same shovel could be used to murder someone and bury them. Now you can mm-hmm. say, well, it's just a tool. Well, repeated use of that tool, that shovel will actually change your body. Um, it could make you stronger, your arms stronger. It could give you a backache. It could, um, grow something on you that wasn't there before, i.e., you know, a stronger back or, or it could injure you, whatever it may be. I think we're mistaken when we call things simply tools that are neither good nor bad. Um, and, and like Marshall McLuhan said here, we become what we behold, and we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Am I reading that correctly? I, I think what I'm trying to say is I think we have a good, we think we have many times in our arrogance a simple understanding of television and media and cell phones and video games. And while they're great in so many ways, There's something going on that if we don't take the time to contemplate and consider, regardless if we understand it or not, that's not the point. It's Mm -hmm. experiences, experience that influence us. The tools shape us regardless of whether we understand them at the deep level or not. Well, that's that's exactly the point is that, um, you know, understanding is really not a requirement. (laughs) Uh, you don't need to to understand how an engine works in order to drive your car, you know, in order for the car to reshape your life, right? Um, I think that's a large part of the point there. Um, and and more to more to the to the wider point is, you know, regardless of our understanding, and it's it's pretty obvious that that we never really have understood it. The car, the highway reshaped work and life uh, by enabling um, people to work and live further than they could walk, you know, and that might seem like a simple thing, but consider the suburb, you know, the car and the highway, which make the suburb possible and commuting. And what effect does that have on a city? You know, Mm -hmm. it changes, it changes not only the, the landscape, um, it changes the whole dynamic. It changes the culture because now you have a culture of people who um, live uh, in another place uh, where they're, you know, safe and secure or whatever else and have their own services. And um, the city is uh, left to, to reinvent itself. Um, the, the, um, they become what they beheld. They become what they be. We become what we behold. We shape our tools, and thereafter, our tools shape us. That's um, that's a quote by a guy by the name of Father John Culkin, 
um, mm-hmm. SJ, uh, okay. who taught well, at Fordham University. It's attributed to, um, your, to your grandfather quite a bit. It is. <laughs> it is. It, it wasn't him. It's attributed to him because it is essentially his idea. Mm. Uh, but uh, Culkin, uh, it's from an uh, article Culkin wrote in, I think, 64, 65, called A Schoolman's Guide to Marshall McLuhan. Um, and it's worth a read. You can find a PDF of it online pretty easily. Schoolman's Guide to Marshall McLuhan. Um, and what he's actually doing is he's borrowing from Winston Churchill, who said, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us, or mm-hmm. we shape our institutions, I think it was, um, to paraphrase uh, or to encapsulate McLuhan's thought, which is that we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. So like, we create a car, but then the car recreates our entire lives. Or, um, and it's interesting, you know, this is why it's important to broaden our understanding of, of what a medium is. Because mm-hmm. think about something like an air conditioner. You know, most communication studies programs would, wouldn't really be much interested in the air conditioner as a medium, as an object of study. But think about a city without air conditioners. Mm. You know, that means you have a, you have a maximum height on buildings because you've got to be able to open windows and you can't build a hundred story building where the window is open, <laughs> you know, uh, heating and cooling, uh, make, make certain things possible, you know, and as far as the extension thing, that's, um, that was Marshall's first working definition of what is a medium, understanding media extensions of man. Uh, a medium is an extension of some human faculty or ability uh, in order to increase uh, scale or pace. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's simplistic, but this is an important working definition in why um, Marshall takes a fork as an area of study as much as a tablet or, you know, a supercomputer or whatever, um, because, uh, well, I do really recommend you go back to that book because there's there's quite a lot in there that's still valuable today. But, um, you know, sometimes it's more or less obvious, but every technology, we, we invent, we innovate in order to make something easier or, uh, or do something better. So, like, you know, instead of having to scoop up water in our hand, we make a spoon or a cup, you know, um, as simple as that. Or in order that we might be able to have a conversation more easily, we invented a telephone. So I don't have to travel over to, where are you? Somewhere in the States. <laughs> I'm in Nashville, just outside of Nashville. Oh, lovely. As much as I'd love to go to Nashville, it wasn't really on my agenda today. Uh, <laughs> you know, So, you know, we, we innovate more or less complex things, but really the goal is the same. It's to, to facilitate something, to do something, um, that you know, we don't have the inherent physical capability to do, and you know, I speculate on this. We sometimes get lost in the wonder of modern technology and fail fail to see the wonder of our most uh, ancient technologies that really are unsurpassed. Like I, I think about this quite a bit, language. Just the fact that you and I um, have have thoughts in our head and are able to formulate them and put them outside of our body 
in the form of sound waves that can reach your ears and you can retranslate that and it makes some kind of sense to you like that. What a miracle, what a absolutely incredible high technology that is. And I'm sorry, but computers are pretty cool and everything, but it still doesn't touch that as far no. as I'm concerned. No, um, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's a, that's another great segue into my next quote, which was, your grandfather says, all media work us over completely. They're so pervasive in their personal, political, economic, aesthetic, psychological, moral, ethical, and social consequences that they leave no part of us untouched, unaffected, unaltered. Any understanding of social and cultural change is impossible without a knowledge of the way media work as environments. All media are extensions of some human faculty, psychic or physical. Mm-hmm. That's a heavy one. That's, that takes some contemplation to really think through that. But again, it does. It does. Um, and you have to be willing to do that work. Yeah. Really is what it comes down to. I mean, we could, we could go through it line by line. This again is part of the reason why, you know, back in, in 2017, 18, when I was thinking of starting the McLuhan Institute, some people said, you know, oh, well, you'll, you'll have to be in Toronto or New York City or something. And I was like, you know, no, I don't think so. I think I'm actually in the perfect place because this is work that requires contemplation. It, uh, it requires space, mental space, physical space. Um, and and it, cities are, are great for certain things. One thing they're not great for is space, <laughs> um, either mental or physical. You know, I mean, parks and everything are great. but um, And if you're the kind that likes to get up at four in the morning at dawn or earlier, you might be able to get some space, uh, room to breathe. But um, really, I think this is a great place because... Um, Again, it's like poetry. If you approach that that paragraph as if it were a poem, um, you're not just going to read it and move on. You're going to take it and and consider it. Think about the words and how they operate together. Um, maybe take it a little phrase at a time and chew it over. And you know, a really great place to do that is um, sitting on the edge of the lake or. Um, you know, on a blanket in the field over here with a, a bottle of something at your side and maybe under a tree. Um, these things, you know, understanding is, is hard one. It really is. Uh, mm-hmm. I, think, I think we get accustomed or illusioned into easy answers by sound bites that, that we think are meaningful but really lack much substance. Um, really, when it comes down to it, the meaning is, is within you and um, it's yours to, to manufacture, I think. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so give yourself the, the time and space to do it. That's, a, that's amazing. Thank you for that. I want to wind it down going, going to, to your father. Mm. Your, Eric McLuhan, he was a Catholic, and he wrote a book in 2015 called The Census Communis, Synesthesia and the soul, an odyssey. And he talks about how to counteract the destabilizing effect of new media on the census communis or the common sense or our common sense by incorporating all the senses and uniting body, 
mind and spirit. So, so your father, from what I understand, I haven't read the book yet. I'm going to get it and read it because, um, the quotes and the things I've, I've, I've heard about it and read about it, the reviews, he was taking this to another level. It appears. Mm. Um, and I'd love to hear from you what your understanding of that book is and what he, where he was going with this, where, your grandfather, Marshall, seemed to talk about from a, an observer and as someone who understood deeply and could see all around him things other people couldn't see. It seems as though your father might have been going to the, um, to the personal and to the spiritual side of saying, it's not just observing, it's not just being aware but it's also maybe what you're doing is contemplating and transformation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, it's very difficult work. Um, I'm not going to pretend to completely understand it. Um, the book is at a print right now. However, um, he did a lecture on it, uh, which is, again, if you go to the McLuhan Institute on YouTube, you can find uh, the lecture from 2015 or 16. Um, the Census Communist Synesthesia and the Soul uh, in Odyssey. He referred to it as an odd essay uh, because, you know, playing with language is a big part of, of what we do here. Uh, <laughs> you know, in fact, um, play was really a key approach of Marshall's. Um, take things lightly. You know, as an explorer, you can't have a fixed position. Um, you can't have a theory. When you start with a theory, you always end up trying to prove or disprove it, and you're going to miss a lot of things. So instead, he tried to pay attention at what things do. So step back a little bit. And that's why he uh, affected this objective stance. Because the same thing is once you decide something is, is you know, however good or bad you might value it, um, you're, you're giving up on a lot of avenues of investigation. You know, it's, you're, you're starting from a point of view and a bias. And Marshall says understanding isn't a point of view. You know, it's all points of view. Hmm. Um, census communis refers to what we talked about a little bit earlier, how, um, you know, we are, everything we know comes from our senses, you know, knowing understanding is kind of step two experiencing is the first step and we experience through the senses um, well before we make any decisions about it we just take in the information uh, uh, through our various senses and it's not just sight touch smell hearing there's dozens of them uh kinesthesia you know the awareness of our body relative to objects in space uh, right. that's a sense a sense of humor even uh, moral senses, all these different things are, are very much senses that form us. And again, they, they exist in an equilibrium relative to each other. And that's what he meant by, that's what's meant by this term senses communis or common sense. That's the interplay of the senses. So the senses communis. Synesthesia is uh, a bit of a phenomenon and uh, it's, it's on the rise. More and more people uh, today report instances of synesthesia. And what that means is you'll have people who say they can, um, uh, sounds have a color or, you know, this, uh, 
Synesthesia is, is essentially when senses, sensory information crosses over so that people can see, um, see sound or uh, have a color experiences relation, relative to sound or anything like that. Um, there's lots of different examples, uh, synesthesia. And this goes toward um, the notion that we live in, in a post-literate area, era. Hmm. And that was a key contention of, of Marshall's that um, there are, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to explain this as succinctly as possible. There's, there's a book by Eric Havelock called Preface to Plato. Hmm. And in this book, uh, Eric Havelock, uh, an incredible scholar, uh, he and Marshall were colleagues for, for a time, but I think Havelock is at Harvard, maybe Yale. Um, and Preface to Plato is his study of the sensory life um, of the Greeks before uh, the alphabet, before writing. Uh, writing changed everything, you know, speech changed everything and then writing changed everything because all of a sudden right. we could put things down onto paper or tablet or stone or whatever. And it was uh, completely, um, things could exist outside of us, you know, what a novel thing that was. But, um, this book preface to Plato is about, um, ex the everyday experience of people before we had the ability to write things down when we lived in a society where all information was transmitted orally from voice to ear to memory, to voice to ear down through generations. And the society that lives that way is much different than the society that lives uh, due to print. Um, you can also see the Gutenberg galaxy, the making of typographic man Marshall's 1962 work um, for a breakdown, kind of, um, how would you say it, whatever the opposite of preface to Plato might be, but it's all about the world since the printing press and the mm -hmm. world that was shaped by the printing press. Anyway, the, the basic contention here is that the world in which we live in, post-literacy, um, uh, has much more in common with the world pre-literate than the worlds in between. Mm. And the pre-literate world was mystical and it was illogical and irrational and it was synesthesia and it was all these things. Um, and, and by the way, post-literacy doesn't mean that uh, we don't write anymore and we can't read. Obviously we can, but it's not what runs our world. Right. You know? um, these little devices we carry in our pockets run our world. And uh, they're, they're very different things. You know, the barrier to entry, for example, any two-year-old and parents do it to their two-year-olds can pick up a smartphone and use it. Right. It takes quite a lot of training to pick up a book and use it. That's right. You know? And the training isn't just teaching you how to read and write. It's training your brain how to experience things and how to look at things and how, how to live and process all information, not just what you're reading on the page. But the world uh, ruled by print is a different world than the rule, world ruled by other forms of communication. Yes. Um, so, and, and then 
and the and the philosophers would uh, there was an argument um, against writing things down. They oh, said, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like what's going to happen when people don't oh, yeah. have to memorize and embody these things? No, all they no, people is, are going to know everything and understand nothing and you'll yeah. never be able to remember anything. And to be honest, it hasn't changed much. We still have that kind of reaction to new technologies. Absolutely. Um, but it, it really does blind us to, um, you know, these kind of fears and, and holding on to the past blind us to what is actually going to happen. And that's a little more to the point. Um, but just uh, just in summary about, about that book, Dad does get into the theological weeds quite a bit. Um, one of the main inspirations for that book is uh, a, a French writer, Henri de Lubac. Um, and so he gets he gets a lot into theology. So it's it's not a book or subject for everybody. However, um, if you're able to, you know, um, I forget who it was that said that a sure sign of civilization or something is the ability to or to hold two opposing things yes. in your mind at the same time. You know, you don't have to buy the whole thing uh, to get something out of it. As, sure. as Marshall said, um, you know, if you if you don't like that idea, I got others. Uh, <laughs> right. But the point the point is that um, Marshall would always say, take what's useful and discard what's not. Yes. Um, life's too short for arguing. Why don't we find what's useful, what we can agree on and build from there? Because, uh, you know. I'm interested, and he was interested in building in, in generative thought, mm. um, not argumentative thought, uh, because uh, while that's, you know, it's a neat tricks in logic and fallacy and all the rest of it, uh, it can be entertaining and fun. At the end of the day, where does that leave us? And I don't think it leaves us too far ahead, and we have a long way to go. Well, what I appreciate about the exploration of where your dad was going was that he wasn't uh, inhibited or scared to explore beyond just the psychological and the physical. And he knows that if we follow that medium as the message and that, and that media transforms and shapes us in its own image, um, you have to look at the whole human being. And, and what we know about human beings is there's something more to us than just um, our brains and our physical bodies. And apparently your dad was not a reductionist in that sense. Um, and so, so kudos for him to exploring that. And, and again, there's so much mystery uh, and difference of opinion around that, but that's okay. That's what makes us uniquely human. So I really appreciate yeah. that. Oh, thank you. You know, um, Marshall was a, a very devout Catholic um, it, it informed who he was on a fundamental level. Um, he never hit it, uh, but he didn't really, he didn't talk about it much. He certainly, um, stayed away from it in his work because he knew that people have a hard time uh, being rational about something that's fundamentally not rational. It's not about rationality, about logic at all. Um, it's about, uh, experience, uh, straight up experience you know right. um, eric uh, my father in that book talks a lot about um the, the three virtues of faith hope and charity or mm. love and he talks about faith as um uh, a mode of perception mm. uh, as as a sense a way of experiencing things uh similarly hope and love but um 
my dad, uh, especially in his later years, didn't shy away from talking about these things. Um, Marshall did just because I think um, he, he didn't want it to interfere with the conversation and didn't feel it was germane to the conversation. You know, I, maybe that's not a good way of putting it, but it was like I was saying about points of view and perspectives and that understanding you know, the Catholic understanding or the Christian understanding is a understanding. It is not all understanding. It's one way of seeing. Um, and there are lots of different ways of seeing, and they're all very important if you want to get a full picture of what's going on. Sure. So, so um, you know, there is a collection of Marshall's writing on religion called hmm. uh, The Medium and the Light. Hmm. Um, and I, I would recommend that. It's edited by my father and Jessica Sklarek. Um, well, I think there's what, what I didn't say at the introduction, and now I think you've opened the door for me to say this. There's something that draws certain people to McLuhan's writings, and that is a mystical essence to it. And if you know what I mean, you know what I mean by that. Not, mm-hmm. I'm not talking woo-woo. I'm talking... If you go back and look at the mystics in, in all religions, there's, there's a way of speaking and a way of understanding and a way of contemplating life that sees the unseen that is there but isn't there. And so I, you're connecting some dots for me in all of this. Well, and as I said, it's, it has more, more in common with poetry mm. uh, than it does with, with prose. Um, and it also comes back to this uh, pre and post literate. And maybe if we wind up somewhere, maybe it'll be in this. And that is um, one major distinction Marshall made was between what he called visual and acoustic space. Um, and this is, this is to refer to our concept of, of space as experienced by the eye versus our concepts of space and everything else uh, uh, as referring to the ear and mm. with the eye, um, you know, the eye sees one thing at a time. Mm. The eye moves logically from here to there, to there, to there. The eye sees those kinds of connections. Um, the ear hears everything at once. Okay. The ear works on resonance, not rationality. Um, and, so visual, he used these as shorthands to describe, um, you know, the world ruled by, by literacy, by print, uh, by the alphabet, and the post-literate world, the world that we know from electricity, um, which is, has very little to do with rationality and very much to do with resonance, um, you know, with rhyme, you know, uh, not necessarily logic. Uh, yeah. Poetry, uh, poetry metaphor doesn't work by logic, but it works by resonance. Uh, same with rhyme, and much of our culture works the same way too. Uh, and if if you look at what's going on, um, anybody can see that logic and rationality are not running; they're not driving this bus. You know, the media uh, is people, driving the bus. <laughs> well, um, you know, the media is is shaping us. Uh, and, and we're for better or worse still behind the wheel and we need to own that, I think. Um, but, but the difference is like, for example, um, you know, people still rely in politics, people rely on polls and they can trust polls. 
when you can poll people and they'll say they're voting this way and then come voting day, they vote the other way. Well, that's because it has, it has nothing to do with logic. You know, people might even just be kind of closing their eyes and putting the mark where it lands, right? It's, it, it has more to do with illogical things like emotion, uh, faith, uh, you know, anarchism, who knows, all kinds of things. But Well, in the psych- from a psychological perspective, uh, John Suller, back in the early 2000s, coined and studied the disinhibition effect. And so mm-hmm. when people get online and use technology, there is a disinhibition effect where they become and act out different roles that they would not role act out in normal human experience. And we see this all the time. Um, the question is why? Exactly. Well, and, because and you can remain anonymous. <laughs> well, yeah, to it has a, lot to do with, has a lot to do with identity because, um, you know, as Marshall said, and he was talking back in the day on, on phone or on the air, uh, you know, you, you're not restrained by, by the physical, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm here. I'm also there. I'm also wherever people are listening to this. Okay, body our bodily identity is not the the determining factor anymore. That's right. Um, Marshall originally thought of this as an angelism. He mm. he he changed it pretty quickly to using the term discarnate, discarnate man. Um, because and and now we spend hours and hours. Some of us spend most of our day outside for all intents and purposes. In effect, outside our bodies. Uh, our body is is not the the limiting factor, and this has huge huge implications, and we're we're seeing them, and this accounts for the changes in psychology and behavior, um, because, well, if you think about it, you know, take this metaphor literally, if you don't have a body, um, that that means a whole lot of things. There there are a lot of consequences um, that require you to have a body. Um, and there are a lot of things that become possible when you don't, uh, anonymity, you know, the way people act online as if there are no consequences, uh, because there are no consequences quite literally. Um, and And it's not just, it's not just bad behavior. It's borderline unusual. So for instance, I was talking to my co-author the other day and we were talking about how prevalent and easy it is to stalk someone online and you know when you you're in your brain you rationally go oh i wonder who this is oh who are their friends oh what else did they post oh who are they connected to and when you really stop yourself and get back into your body and you say if you were to do that in real life (laughs) that would be borderline psychotic right like if you were going around knocking on people's door, asking them who they were connected to and trying to, you know, see where this person went and find out their personal, uh, you know, things that that's that's not healthy in any way. Doing background uh, checks on everybody you meet is not normal behavior. <laughs> yeah, but we do it. But in, it is every, now. We do it every day, several times yeah. a day. Well, some of us. Mm-hmm. Um sure. And so, again, this has been a fascinating conversation, Andrew. We need to wind it down. I know your day have other things to do, but thank you for taking the time. Um, I'm going to leave with telling people 
how they can learn more about the McLuhan Institute and get in touch with you. Can you just share those places? For sure. Um, I mean, I'm not a web guy, uh, unfortunately, so my website's not usually great, but um, you can, you know, my main outlets are Twitter. If you look for the McLuhan Institute on Twitter, on Instagram, I tell kind of the visual story of what I'm doing. Uh, my YouTube channel for the McLuhan Institute has a lot on it. Um, and I'm just about to launch a newsletter. So if you if you go to mcluhan.substack.com, uh, please subscribe and, and keep up to date on that. But um, yeah, Twitter's, Twitter's fun. I try and pull out uh, the interesting and lesser known and provocative McLuhan things and, and put them up there. So that's um, great. And that's spelled M-C-L-U-H-A-N, correct? Uh, so McLuhan Institute, you can Google that, you can search it on Twitter, Instagram, all the places, uh, anything else that you'd like to leave our, our listeners with before I sign off? Um, you know, I hope I don't come across as, as doom and gloom. I'm actually a very hopeful person. If there's, if there's one thing I've learned, you know, the things when Marshall said the medium is a message back in 1958, and for decades after, people thought he was crazy. What are you talking about? Today, um, I, can, I can do a little seminar or something and give a couple of examples of him saying it, and people understand that he was talking about, well, what we just discussed. And obviously, the medium is the message, right? It's obvious today. That gives me hope. Uh, That's great. We're, we're making progress, and let's keep going and you know, be kind to each other and a kind word goes a long way. Well, thank you for that, Andrew. What a, an amazing way to end this conversation. Again, thank you very, very much. I want to talk to you again because, you know, this is an extra long podcast, but it was well worth it. So we'll have to do it again before long. Thank you for what you're doing. Your work matters. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.